Hey, this is Julia Piper, your host of Political Climate, and I want to tell you about a new podcast from Critical Frequency called Generation Green New Deal. If you're terrified of the climate crisis and want to do something about it, this podcast is for you. Host Sam Eilertson takes a look at how scrappy organizations led by teenagers and 20-somethings have embarrassed politicians, knocked powerful incumbents out of office, and brought the U.S. closer than ever to addressing the issue that will define the future of humanity, climate change. The first season features Varshini Prakash of the Sunrise Movement, Naomi Klein, Bill McKibben, Rihanna Gunn-Wright, Jamie Margolin, and many more incredible climate activists. Subscribe to Generation Green New Deal wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you with support from Lyft. Lyft is continuing its leadership in creating a cleaner, healthier, and more equitable future with a bold commitment to reach 100% electric vehicles used on the Lyft platform by 2030. The shift to EVs will create opportunities for drivers to lower costs and keep more of their earnings. Transportation currently accounts for the largest portion of greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S., and so Lyft is committed to leading the way to decarbonize its platform through vehicle electrification. Learn more at liftimpact.com electric. It'd be almost impossible to fund a certain candidate in a high-profile race without the other side upping the ante and without the media playing it all up. So canceling each other out is what we're doing, and I'm not going to continue doing that anymore. Healthy democracy is what In This Together is all about. It's no secret that there's an incredible amount of money in politics. Campaign spending in 2020 is expected to reach $11 billion, making it the most expensive election in U.S. history. That comes on the heels of record midterm election spending in 2018 and $7 billion spent on the presidential election in 2016. In light of these growing numbers, a group of donors from across the political spectrum say they're laying down arms and joining forces to transform politics and solve universal problems such as climate change. We speak to Texas businessman and environmentalist Trammell S. Crow about why he and social entrepreneur Bill Shireman launched this collaborative effort and where it's headed. Welcome to Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I am Julia Piper, your host, contributing editor at Green Tech Media and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. On April 24th, as the U.S. death toll from COVID-19 hit 50,000 people and the depth of the economic impact of the pandemic became apparent, a dozen billionaire political donors gathered online with business leaders, foundation chiefs, scientists, advocates, and others to lay out a bold plan dubbed In This Together. The plan? To fundamentally transform the business of politics in a post-COVID America. The group was convened by Dallas real estate scion Trammell S. Crow in a rare effort to reduce political polarization and work across partisan lines to solve big issues like climate change. Donors and their peers who participated in the gathering are expected to contribute billions of dollars to presidential campaigns this year, often with one donor's dollars pitted against another's in an ongoing political arms race. Trammell Crow's objective was to reduce the spend on political warfare, as he called it, and redirect those billions towards solutions that can unite a governing majority of Americans from left to right. 
So how would that work exactly? Well, my co-host and I put that question directly to Trammell Crow and his colleague, Bill Shireman. These two men co-founded In This Together, which is both an active organization and the title of Trammell and Bill's new book. For background, Trammell Crow is also the creator of EarthX, one of the largest annual environmental forums in the world. And in full disclosure, EarthX sponsored the Political Climate Podcast earlier this year, but had no editorial control over this interview. Trammell also serves on the board of directors for Conserve America and is co-founder of Texas Business for Clean Air and Texans for Clean Water. He's also a long-term supporter of the Texas Conservation Alliance, the Nature Conservancy of Texas, the League of Conservation Voters, and other organizations. Bill Shireman is known as a rare San Francisco Republican. As president of the nonprofit Future 500, he invited Greenpeace, Rainforest Action Network, ExxonMobil, Mitsubishi, and other corporate and environmental leaders to work together on the world's first corporate supply chain standards for sustainable forestry, as well as an effective beverage container recycling program. But he's also seen efforts fail due to political gridlock. In addition to co-founding In This Together, Bill teaches leadership and negotiations at the UC Berkeley Haas Business School. Finally, to round out the introductions, this conversation also features my Democratic co-host, Brandon Hurlbut, former chief of staff at the Department of Energy, and Republican co-host, Shane Skelton, former energy advisor to Paul Ryan. While you're here, please subscribe to Political Climate if you haven't yet. And then be sure to send us a screenshot of your subscription wherever you like to listen, and we'll donate $2 to the American Red Cross in your name. Simply send that screenshot to Polly underscore climate on Twitter or to me at J-M-P-Y-P-E-R. You can also email us at politicalclimatepodcast at gmail.com. Also, if you're already a subscriber, please share the podcast with a friend or colleague and help us give back as we grow. A sincere thank you. And for now, here's Trammell and Bill. So earlier this year, you partnered to launch In This Together. It's an initiative designed to transform the business of politics in a post-COVID America. And the focus is on reducing political polarization and working across partisan lines to solve big problems like climate change. So Trammell, I'd love to go to you first. Kick us off with what In This Together is all about. But really, I'd love to get at why in this seemingly painfully and endlessly partisan era, you are focusing your efforts on collaboration. Yeah, we have learned by doing here at EarthX. We started a, a Earth Day Dallas 10 years ago and learned in a real sense that bringing different points of view together is absolutely necessary. Bill Sharman said last night, before you can fix the environment, you got to fix the political system. Oh, no. Too, too difficult. To- <laughs> oh, gosh. Fix the political system. That sounds like no small uh, task. Bill, what did you mean by that? Fix the political system. Um, that sounds like a huge thing to bite into. So what did, what did you mean when you said that? It's, it, it sounds huge. It's actually much more doable. The, the belief that it's huge is part of what just you know, completely uh, knocks us down. But uh, here's the basic problem. We have a political industry that has learned to profit from fear. Uh, uh, the political industry on both the right and the left and the power brokers there use fear to scare uh, uh, half of America of the extreme ideas of the extreme right and the other half of America of the extreme ideas of the extreme left. 
and leaves us each in echo chambers where we hear only one half of the reality. And all we hear about the other half is how scary they are. Now, this is a business model. It works to generate money for political operatives, for lobbyists and communicators and pollsters and campaigners and so on. It divides the people so that there is no governing majority, which gives the political industry more capability to manage policy on behalf of clients. And it generates a lot of money uh, for them but it's extremely destructive to democracy. So we got to get around that. And in order to deal with climate change and a dozen other uh, existentially important issues the nation is facing, we've got to fix politics. So Bill, I would I have a question about that. I mean, I am afraid, uh, very afraid, not because of what the media tells me, because I served in the highest levels of the of the federal government in the White House. I've been in meetings in the Situation Room uh, with the president. Um, and what I have seen over the last four years scares the hell out of me. Um, why shouldn't I be afraid? <laughs> it's not that you shouldn't be afraid. Uh, there are real things to fear, and I share your fear. Uh, but human beings don't work well with an abundance of fear. We, we need three parts hope for every one part fear. The media gives us about 10 parts fear uh, for every one part of hope, simply because it generates more ad clicks. It generates more ad revenues. So uh, nobody really planned to destroy democracy in this way, but it happens to, to, to work. So we end up with very scary people in office because this system uh, frightens us into electing people that we really don't want to elect, which is why we have no real choices this November. I just want to jump in as the journalist quickly and say, you know, I feel like there is a distinction to be made between the echo chambers of social media, which is now being dubbed the media, which really emphasizes this, and then mainstream media and local media, which... Let's not forget about our local papers, which have traditionally done a really good job of holding policymakers accountable. And now all of it's kind of being uh, clumped together. But I do think that there are some outlets that are doing a genuinely good job of highlighting real ills in our world. And then there is this echo chamber of social media that brings out the worst in, in traditional media and new media. And it, it, it just gets confusing as to what's real and what's not. Shane? And you know, hi highlighting Bill's point, we talked a little bit about this offline, but I've, um, I'm going to you know make a lot of enemies right now, but I've traveled quite a bit uh, during this shutdown because no one else is. And so I've gotten to go to national parks and see the Great West. And, and I went to the East Coast and, and driving around, spent a lot of time in the car with my family. And what's interesting is out here in California, you know, there's one narrative and, it, and it's very, very strong. Um, and that's what I've gotten used to and accustomed to. But I was in Florida this past week. I just got back last night. And the narrative is the exact opposite. If President Trump does not get reelected, our country is over. It's done. And I hear the same thing, you know, out here on the on the left. If he does get reelected, I don't live in either space. I sort of think, okay, how do I go about my business? How do I help, you know, achieve our shared goals? I don't have, you know, the fear, I guess, on either side. But it is very real. And one of the things I realized in driving around, we drove from Southern California up, you know, into Wyoming and, and back two different routes is that everyone lives differently. And I think people forget that often. There's several ways to live that are totally and completely okay. 
And people are going to have different views when they live that way. And I don't think any of them are awful and any of them are wrong. I, I think that it, it, we have gotten to a point where there are two polar opposites and no one is willing to understand that maybe you view the world different than me because you live differently. Even with climate, maybe you view climate through the eyes of a rancher. If you're having problem with crops or, or land destruction, maybe you view climate differently if you're in Florida or California and you're seeing erosion of the coastline. There's different ways to view the same thing and there isn't a right way and a wrong way. And we, we don't live in that space. Anymore I love ranchers. I like why, that's where we get our food from. I'm surprised well, that anyone, I'm, you know, I think there's- No, no I'm not picking on no, you. I'm just saying that they might view how to approach climate change differently than you do, you know, based on their experience. That doesn't make them bad. And I'm not on social media. So when I get, you know, Slack notes from you all on our political climate channel, I've never seen most of the things that, that a lot of you are upset about. And that, that's sort of interesting to me as well. I'm not even aware of them. Well, I understand that there's, there's different ways and different viewpoints, but shouldn't we be aligned on basic tenets and uh, the foundation of this country? Things like the right to vote. I mean, when you see people standing in line for 10, 11 hours, uh, only in areas where it's people of color, why shouldn't we be very angry about that? I don't think there's a both sides to that. I think that there's only one side to that. It, there's, there's a right and a wrong. Brandon, yeah. there's a right and the wrong. No reason to get angry about it. I'm glad to hear you say that, Trevor. <laughs> right? Travel, well, you have, travel one of, the, one of the, the, really the uniqueness of EarthX is that it is the broadest, most diverse, most inclusive environmental platform in the world. It was the largest gathering. And now with EarthX TV, the objective is to create the largest online community of folks. Trammell, tell, tell some of the people and, and, and odd bedfellows that uh, you bring together at EarthX. Thank you. I'll try to uh, talk quickly. The best thing I talk about is EarthX. I have become a one trick pony over these last 12 years. Uh, we didn't realize when we started Earth Day Dallas in 2011 that there wasn't a meaningful Earth Day event uh, on, any, on any large scale anywhere in the world. We, we didn't do research. We just did what we thought was right. We got every environmental group that we could find to have a little booth and exhibit all together. We also had the city government teaching people how to recycle. Corporations, we didn't even think twice about to have or not to have corporations. We have wound up over these 12, over these 10 years, having smart city, sustainable ranching, legal symposium, uh, uh, clean tech uh, investment summit uh, to halfway through this uh, odyssey five years ago with Bill, we started having corporate sustainability conference. And that was our first. Now we have other groups doing conferences. We put on our own about 15 conferences, all these different areas. It's, uh, it's hard to have a metric to define the value of bringing the farmer to the ocean guy, but it's what we just call it the snap crackle pop. <laughs> Tell about, you know, you had, you had uh, 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 an, an ex two exhibitors that you put right next to each other you were worried about, I think that first year. The first year in the street, we moved to the State Fair of Texas Fairground right by downtown since then, a, a glorious place of Texas deco. Uh, the first year we were tearing down the booths on a Sunday afternoon and this uh, uh, exhibitor 
Texas Conservation Alliance, I think, came up and said, Trammell, Trammell, you had us located right next to a corporation. I said, I am so sorry. It won't happen again next year. And he said, no, no, this is great. We've always wanted to know that company. And now we do. Thank you. Lesson number one. So uh, the, 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 most of the lessons were early on about uh, opposing points of view, maybe being in Dallas. It's, it's like the Chinese say, the farther you are from Beijing, the more you can do. <laughs> and, and maybe we have a certain space in, in the heartland. Certainly this conservative bastion of Dallas would not have uh, participated in the leadership of Dallas, participated in Earth Day, Earth Day Dallas, unless we'd had all points of view. Yeah, I think just to to follow up on that, what do you think the rest of the country doesn't get about environmentalism in Texas? You're talking about this event that pulls in tens of thousands of people. We should note that as a podcast, we were going to go there, record, uh, you know, have a booth as well. And we we're really looking forward to it. And to be honest, a couple years prior, I hadn't really known just how big EarthX was. So what do you think people are maybe missing about what's happening in Dallas on environmentalism? It's, it's just the same phenomenon of I, being a landlubber, except for the research that I do now, would know nothing about the ocean. You've got to see. On both coasts, they don't understand the difference between conservationism and environmentalism. It dawned on me only a few years ago, and conservationists are on the front line. Oftentimes, they're all, all also good funders of, uh, of, of projects. Uh, I was on Marathon, Texas this last weekend with uh, about 40 hunters out there in the close to the Big Bend National Park, welding together water guzzlers for the uh, bighorn sheep. So there is a certain amount of uh, conceit that conservationists have because they're on the front line. They see environmentalists as people who protest and, and interfere and themselves as people who work in solutions. Obviously, that's not always true. But the passion and the knowledge and the, and the wealth that can come from conservationists it needs to really weld together. That coming together will reach many different happy mediums. That's what's been inspiring about being in Texas, because you realize that half of the environmentalists out there are missing because we don't see conservationists among them. The farmers, the ranchers, the hunters, the fishers, the people who live in the environment, really enjoy the environment, love the environment, and, and they're for the most part set aside because they tend to be more politically conservative. And so we've had an environmental movement that's grown up uh, and been put in this box that says this is a leftist community and the right's left out. We need to really open our doors wide to everybody in this because if we don't have both halves of the environmental movement, then we are conquered. We're divided and conquered. I guess, yeah, and I want to get back into In This Together and and what you're doing with that initiative and, and book. It's actually a book. But I do want to ask this one pointed question. I feel like a lot of the division comes down to the future role of fossil fuels. Does that fit into the future? That's where I see a lot of discussions break down. A lot of people can unite around generally reducing emissions, 
but I think the climate community separates from maybe the conservation one, and I don't know if it's this clean of a break, but around can oil and gas fracking exist in the future? And then you get into other environmental issues like water quality and, and other pollutants other than just carbon and methane. So how do you guys think about that? Do you think it's accurate to say that that is where the real flashpoint is? We all want greener spaces and, and parks, but is there a role for fossil fuels in the future? How do you think about that? Yeah, that is the that's the that's the problem. And we know it well here. I know many fine conservationists who are in the oil and gas business who are doing nothing to prepare for the transition. They'll be caught. But to deny oil and gas at this time uh, immediately, obviously, wouldn't work. And I don't think that's been thought through. We have a conference at EarthX uh, called Responsible Shale Acquisition. And for a day and a half, we have sci uh, scientists talking to uh, 100 or 200 drilling companies about how to do it better. Uh, it, it, it's it's the, 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 the battlefield, you're right. Bill, do you have any thoughts on that? How does that happen? I know you've brought people together from oil companies with environmentalists. Do you find that this is where things start to break down? It does because we have this uh, ideological frame that we're working in rather than a pragmatic problem-solving frame. Uh, people want to define what virtue is and then define themselves as the ones that have the virtue. And so to say that we want 100% renewable energy uh, it is a, a very popular thing to say. It can be done by individual people and by companies but it is absolutely anti-ecological to do it on a global uh, mandatory basis. And that's what the right tends to understand more than the left. The left classically uh, uh, has an optimistic view toward people and nature. The left is biased toward the idea that people are selfless and that nature is supportive. And so if we just let people do what they want to do, they will naturally support each other. And there's some truth to that, but it's not true all the time. The right has a more constrained or pessimistic view. It says that people are usually selfish and that nature, the world out there, is threatening. Uh, it's also not always true, but quite often it is. And so the left just thinks to make things good, just obliterate all the bad. And so their, their tendency is to say, well, let's just get rid of fossil fuels, 100% renewables, zero fossil fuels. The right looks at that and says, that's scary. You know, to get to zero fossil fuels, you've got to have a big government with a heavy hand that's going to mandate what we do. Nature does not work like that. Nature doesn't ban anything. Nature thrives through diversity. And is that not more of a, a political question, though, than I think because I think the I'm just playing devil's advocate because I agree with you that the transition is messy. But just to like play this out, is that not more of a scientific question getting off of fossil fuels or anything emitting or at least capturing those emissions? It's a scientific one rather than a, a virtue based one, because I think the big government point that sounds more about organizing principles and people than it does about anything scientific. That that's, sounds that's different. the difference between problem solvers and ideologues. Bill. Yep. Sorry, yeah. back no, to you, Bill. I just wanted to hammer that out there. Yeah. Science, you know, science is is uh, humans understanding how things actually work. 
It is not an ideology. It doesn't prove anything. Uh, but science gives us knowledge and tools to act on. The reality is, if you study conservation biology, uh, that, that uh, uh, nature thrives through diversity. There is no, nature doesn't evolve toward the perfect system that then lasts forever. It constantly adapts. And if we want a sustainable economy, we've got to act more like nature. But here's where we don't. We don't charge any cost for pollution. We, we make it free up until a certain level and then we ban it, right? But we're not paying for pollution. So all of these externalities that we're experiencing are what Republicans would call socialism, that we're, we're, apply, we're, we're pushing all these costs onto all of society. We need to put a price on pollution. That is how capitalism should be working. When we and those costs are not evenly distributed across society. There no, are people, usually people of color, that suffer worse from those costs. Marginalized groups absolutely suffer the most from that. When you spread, when you spread these costs to society, uh, it's the weakest that pay the biggest costs. So we think progressives and conservatives should unite behind the idea of putting a price on carbon. But here's what we what we fear is that the price on carbon will just be used to funnel more money through the political system, through the government. So we would rather cut taxes over here and raise them over here, cut taxes on payroll, cut taxes on, uh, on income, uh, make it up with a tax on carbon. That is more just, it's more fair, and it means that we are actually driving toward uh, a carbon, uh, a, a, a net zero carbon economy. The fee and dividend system. Uh, I'd like to echo what Brandon said. Climate justice, that's unjust and it would inevitably happen. But perhaps worse still, uh, something we haven't mentioned, we build a cement plant in that neighborhood. We have the uh, 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 power plant uh, across the railroad track from uh, a poor neighborhood, if that's really climate justice. Yeah. So maybe the, the new angle is the donor community. I know that through In This Together, you're trying to mobilize philanthropic communities. What did they want? How are you reaching them? What is of interest to the donor class as they think about how to solve the problems post-COVID and post-election? Travel, tell a little bit about your experience with the political industry and uh, and how donors like you are now feeling about all the money that you've put into politics and environmental protection in the last. Well, first of all, let me say that ever since uh, studying economics in college, I uh, graduated thinking that I was in some kind of silent majority of social liberal fiscal conservative, and I think most uh, uh, people educated uh, and hardworking that I know are that, whether they say they belong to a party or not. But because of my father's background in the Republican Party and because being in Dallas, I have worked with Republicans to bring them into the arena, sometimes criticized by Democrats for uh, doing that as if it's some preference. It's the heavy lifting, pulling them into the arena. Everybody knows in the back of the mind that the political industry, the the media, the lobbyists, and uh, others are a self-perpetuating group 
and many of them go by the dollar. Certainly the media is for profit business. So it shouldn't be a surprise. What's really happening is we're canceling each other out. It'd be almost impossible to fund a certain candidate in a high profile race without the other side upping the ante and without the media playing it all up. So canceling each other out is what we're doing. And I'm not going to continue doing that anymore. Healthy democracy is what In This Together is all about. So pulling money out of elections and, and into issues, is that right? Would you Do you think that the this effort and attention and dollars will be redirected into like climate solutions directly? Our objective is literally to change the business model of the political industry. That's objective number one. We can do that by shifting our money out of traditional political campaign processes, which are all about generating fear. If you donate to the Biden campaign, your money is used to make Donald Trump look as scary as possible. If you donate to the Trump campaign, your you money is used to do to much to do that, Bill. And you don't have to. You don't have to. Bring, well, thank you very much. Yeah. And, and why do we have Donald Trump in the White House? He is a product of this system that made people so scared of his alternative that they voted for him, even though he had the highest negatives of anyone ever elected president, as him has consistently since that time. So I'm not, not apologizing for anybody here. We got scary people out there now because of this system. So, but there are ways around it. Big data has been used to manipulate us into ever smaller communities uh, with ever more narrow, extreme ideas. But some of the heroes in our donor community have invested in big data for good. We have learned how to identify people who want solutions. We call them solutions voters. They don't react to fear the same way other voters do. They react to hope and they react to, to pragmatic idealism. They want to see solutions. We've identified these voters. They're really ignored by the traditional political industry because they're not reliable enough from their perspective, but they are reliable. They just vote for solutions. And we've been able to move about 17% of them in the elections that we focused on. Doesn't matter what party, they will vote across party lines. They're not detected right now as, as you know bipartisan or moderates, but they will cross party lines to vote for the best candidate. So we're going to put our money into those processes, citizen data, solution voter. Uh, we want to shift a billion dollars uh, uh, from the current adversarial system to this new system by 2024. And we want to recruit 5 million solution citizens across the country to change the political dynamics so that we've got enough people in every state and every district to turn elections away from polarizers and toward problem solvers and get some of these scary people uh, out of our uh, political lives. I just want to note there's a, a poll that came out just today, I think, from Resources for the Future that found 94% of Democrats believe climate change is happening, as do nearly 70% of Republicans. And I think we forget that this is not that polarizing when you ask people. It gets polarizing at the political level, especially the federal level. 
Mind you, at the state level too, because we did have a researcher at the state level on recently who tracked more than a thousand votes across state level uh, various bills that were climate and energy related. And it almost always broke down on party line where Democrats would vote for it and Republicans would not. So when you come to these solutions voters, doesn't that end up falling into the same Democrat versus Republican uh, division bill because ultimately they have to vote for someone and right now that someone tends to be a Democrat. So how do you, again, pull the parties out of it? Well, the, the partisan process is really, it's got a trap door for us. For, the, for those of us who you know, are Republicans but disgusted by the climate denial, uh, a lot of us just leave the party. And then when we've left the party, we leave it to the climate deniers. So while 70% of Republican voters accept that climate change is real and want to do something about it, only 40% of Republican vote, of registered Republicans have that view. And so candidates realize to get nominated, you've got to be an extreme denier on climate. That is a deep flaw in the system. And from my perspective, it means more people should register Republican because we need more of a mainstream party. I, you know, that's the, the, the easiest solution, but people can't stomach that. So in the absence of that, we activate the solution voters inside both parties and we beat the polarizers in the primary. So that's that's the objective that we have. It's not to you know win one party over the other. It's to make sure that we knock the 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 polarizers out at the primary level so that we have two good candidates who can support the supermajority of voters who want action to be taken and we get best the best from the left and the right which we're certainly not getting right now. So when we look at some of these votes, one of the things that I've been thinking about is um, Trammell mentioned earlier that most of the people, and I don't want to misquote what you said, but most of the people that you know in business and that care about these types of things are socially liberal and fiscally conservative. Um, that's true for me, at least, uh, as well. Uh, most of the people I spend time with or, or, or talk to about these issues. And, and like you said, they're not all Republicans. Um, but if you actually get to, to asking about why they, they vote the way they do or believe what they believe, they're socially liberal and fiscally conservative. I sometimes wonder, climate solutions have to cost money. That's just a fact. Um, and I don't think that's a bad fact. I think it's just a, a fact. It, it costs money to deploy clean energy. It costs money to build the infrastructure that we're going to need to support electric vehicles. It costs money to do a lot of these things. And I don't think that's a bad thing. It's just, I think, the way that the world works. And so what I sometimes wonder is if you're fiscally conservative like me and socially liberal, if you want to get Republican votes for some of these packages, a lot of the complaints they have, whether genuine or or just sort of um, smoke screening, is we're not going to vote for a $2 trillion environmental package or something like that. But what if bills were better written? What if you found ways to write legislation that did all those great things um, to help us address climate change, but also you know found a lot of the waste that we have in our government or found a lot of the ways that we're spending money you know needlessly, our, our annual budget's near $5 trillion at this point? Um, and, and, and put a package on the floor that no one could say this raises the deficit. This is a problem. It addresses climate in all the ways that we agree is necessary. And then also doesn't increase the deficit and gives Republicans something to get excited about, which is cutting what they view as wasteful spending. I don't ever hear that conversation. I'm curious if you guys have been part of those conversations, if you've heard them or if you're like me, where it just never seems to come up. Here's what's scary. Um, Though any legislation that meets that criteria is dead on arrival in the Congress because of the way that the political industry works. Ten years ago, we sat down in two separate rooms with lawyers from ExxonMobil and from Greenpeace, and we worked out between them a federal 
uh, carbon tax that was 90% revenue neutral, uh, that would have been sufficient to drive down carbon emissions, you know, three, four, five percent a year. Uh, and they agreed on every line, super low cost, very efficient, uh, 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 you know, didn't raise the deficit, uh, had, uh, uh, you know, social justice corrections uh, built into it. And it, it was, of course, dead on arrival because it didn't cost enough to pay the tolls at every committee and every barrier in the in in Congress. I mean, who wants if you're an, if you're a political industry person, who wants to support something that's that's pretty much uh, that's extremely low cost, where you're not able to extract money from interest groups uh, uh, to uh, pave the way through? So it comes down to the political industry. There are 70% solutions across the board to a lot of different issues, certainly climate, readily resolvable uh, to the satisfaction of 70% of the population. Bill, are you saying that Democrats oppose that proposal? The the, I mean, that's 10 years ago. I, that seemed to me like that would have been a very attractive proposal. No, they, they supported cap and trade. Cap and trade, you know, cap and trade, you know, was kind of the best we could do. But cap and trade was a half trillion dollar a year, you know, transfer of funds to the finance sector, uh, to the coal industry, to electric utilities, to you know, oil and gas companies. Now, I'm not saying it's a bad policy. It's really the probably the best we could have gotten at that time. But it was a transfer of a half trillion dollars from taxpayers to various industries with money extracted along the way to the political industry. That's just how things work. So uh, uh, that's okay, I guess, but we couldn't get it through because it was really too much. So we got to get back to a system where a carbon tax that is revenue neutral can actually be voted through because it's you know a necessary, not sufficient, but necessary step. And no, Democrats will not support it to get it through Congress, there aren't enough, you know, the coal, the coal Democrats and so on, there'll be a bidding war. And that's what, ha that's what happens. There's no pure party uh, and no uh, uh, evil party out there. Brandon, are you working on a carbon tax? Like Brandon, you're, you're a Democrat, you know, you've been involved with clean energy for Biden and getting Biden elected. So I'm curious to put that to you. I know that the movement among progressives has moved toward regulation. We've seen some polling among Democrats saying that. But are you and others still beating the drum on, on carbon pricing? Are you over that as well? Do you think that has any shot on the Democrat side today? I think there's a lot more consensus with Democrats on setting industry standards, like a clean energy standard, like they have in many states, an RPS, Renewable Portfolio Standard, uh, making investments alongside of that uh, to be able to achieve those standards and doing it in a just and equitable way to make sure we're prioritizing those that have suffered first and worst uh, from pollution. I do think there's still an interest in a price on carbon. It's not prioritized as much because every time we suggested it, Democrats got beat over the head. It's like uh, it was used as a political weapon against us. So I think that the reason that Democrats have shifted on the policy priorities is number one, we are in such a worse position than we've ever been. We have been uh, we haven't taken enough action the last couple of decades. So now we're really in a bad spot, and so. You know, I, I too, you know, have a preference for you know, some fiscal, you know, conservatism, 
But when the problem is so massive, you know, we're left with no other choice. Um, and so I, you know, I do think that if Republicans wanted to take the lead on, you know, carbon pricing, uh, it would be a much better political environment for Democrats to come alongside of that rather than be the ones out front on that particular policy. Yeah. And of course, none of that's going to happen in the current system, because just as you say, Brandon, uh, uh, Republican strategists are going to hang Democrats with the tax uh, word. And if any Republicans came out and said, we want to we want a carbon tax, they will hang them in the primary. So it's just not going anywhere right now. And the only reason it's not going anywhere is because of the political industry. It's not the oil companies. Certainly, most of them are in support of. They're spending millions of dollars to try to get a carbon tax or a, or a cap and dividend and so on. Uh, but they can't do it because it doesn't fit the political narratives that are enforced. Although oil companies, like other companies, support the political I, I would industry. Push back. I'd push back a little bit on that. I, I actually think that the, the lobbyists and the, the consultants, I, I mean, I understand your point there, but I think the biggest threat- <laughs> As a consultant. Well, yeah, but, no, no, I, but I do, I understand it. But I, but I do think the biggest threat to Republicans on, on climate or you know Democrats on any host of other issues is the primary system. Um, now that's still political fundraising. I agree with that. But I do think that most mainstream ideas that most Americans would support, whether it's on climate or other things, can't drive a candidate on either side through a primary where the lines have been drawn to create pretty safe districts out of 435. I'd say probably 300 of them are uh, unlosable um, from either side. And the only way to lose is to not be sufficiently conservative or sufficiently liberal. And there's nothing you know any lobbyist can do about that. If you can get people to turn out to vote in a primary, that sort of is what it is. You're exactly right. And I don't mean to blame any people or any class of people in this. You know, we, we, we like to just you know blame one group. It's all the Democrats fault. It's all the Republicans fault. It's big oil's fault. You know, and I, I'm not saying that the political industry is at fault, but the political industry is a system that is that has been corrupted. And the primary is a big part of that. So reforming primaries, as we've done in California and as a number of states are doing, is fundamental to getting decent carbon uh, uh, and climate uh, passed. In fact, here in California, it was Charles Munger Jr., uh, the largest Republican donor in the state, who took it upon himself to open the primary system and change uh, gerrymandering so that moderates could actually be elected. And it was that that enabled eight Republicans to join with Democrats to renew the state's cap and trade system. So this process of reforming democracy works directly to protect the environment. We've seen it in California. We need it nationally. Trammell, I'd love to come back to you and, and talk again about In This Together. How has that been received, both the book and the broader initiative? I know you're doing work behind the scenes. And what does that mean for your work going forward through EarthX and other you know communication channels that you have? What is sort of the next step to all of this? Noting we are just a couple of weeks out from a major election and we're still in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. Next step, I really couldn't speak to because of the election and because Bill Sharman knows so much more than I do. But the response has been fantastic. Uh, uh, our business associates in, in, in the state of Texas and various enviros, I'll say, uh, corporate and NGO around the country have called in quite a bit. 
We've got 20, uh, 20 major donors who are getting together in two days uh, on Zoom to talk about the day after the election and how we can pick up the pieces, because we all know that there are going to be 60 million really angry people on, on November 4th, no matter who wins. And uh, a lot of them are inside these echo chambers that tell them the world is about to end because their candidate didn't win. They're going to be frightened. Uh, they're going to be angry. And we want to focus on giving them a place to go. So we've got two things that we have going, uh, places for them to go. One is In This Together America, which is our political side, inthistogetheramerica.org, is the place for people to go who want to contribute to campaigns in a way that actually unites Americans. So, you know, step number one, change the business model for politics uh, by going to inthistogetheramerica.org. Change number two is to begin to change the business model for media uh, from one that profits from fear to one that harnesses our hopes. And for that, EarthX TV is the is literally the channel. EarthX TV is a place where we can see quality media, learn about the news from all sides, literally all sides. We've got uh, we've got a news feed that shows people what all sides are saying about the news, particularly environmental news. See great films, learn great science, learn about nature. Uh, this is real media, not calculated to scare uh, or even to entertain, but to enrich people. As a parent, I love this because I can send my kids to watch EarthX TV and they learn about science and nature in interesting ways. And so, you know, those are the two things we need to do. We need to change the political business model and the media business model. And we're doing our part. But we can't. I was watching some news last night and they were interviewing some Trump uh, supporters that were attending his rally. And they were just asking basic questions like, um, are the number of Corona, the number of people of coronavirus, is that number rising or going down? And so many of these people were, you know, just saying going down. They just didn't have the facts. Um, how are you going to drive people away from the Fox News, the Breitbart's, the Rush Limbaugh's to EarthX TV so that they can get more factual information. You hit the nail on the head. Science. Yeah. And it's more compelling now and uh, it would it would it's more attractive to people now because now we have to preach science not only to Republicans but to Democrats of the extreme climate uh, ilk. Mm -hmm. Stick to science. Yeah. And the way to do it, you know, here are the two things, the two things that people can do to change. Use their money and use their votes. Use your money by asking all the companies that you buy from, and we'll be doing this, asking all the companies that we buy from to shift their money out of the political campaigns and media channels that focus on fear and division. Remove that. Now, if 5 million people ask their favorite brands, their favorite retailers to join them in withdrawing their money from uh, uh, news and from political channels that are calculated to divide us on fear, then we can change those business models. 
It'll take about 5 million people to change the, the political business model. It'll probably take 15 million or more to change the media business model. Uh, but that's all it takes. People decide. Does, does that include, like, what counts as a, 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 an outlet of fear? Well, certainly, as you, as you say, you know, uh, cable and, um, and uh, social media channels are the primary focuses here. But it's not so much changing out of particular uh, networks and channels. It's what programs you support. It's what uh, uh, messages uh, you tie your advertising to. Uh, you can tie your advertising to hopeful messages and to uniting messages just as easily as you can tie them to fear-based messages. There's no doubt that it's that, you know, the dominant messages out there that people follow are scary ones. And so that's where the advertising gets dragged along. Advertisers, that means you know, consumer brands and others need to become aware of that and set specifications. And when they do set those specifications, all of those media channels will change because they want ad dollars. And if they're not getting them for fear, then they're going to get them another way. And maybe as a last resort, they'll try hope. Well, I have to say I tuned into EarthX TV and as I was tuning in, I think it was uh, some some youth activists from all over the world. I think I heard Philippines and here in the US. I just happened to log on and they were having a discussion Previously at an EarthX event, I saw a preview of a documentary of the deep seas and what's happening out there in terms of the environmental issues around fishing and, and a whole bunch of other stuff that I had never thought of before. And these are highly produced, excellent pieces of journalism. So just to kind of paint a picture of what we're talking about here uh, when you talk about EarthX TV. Well, we have come to the end of our show. I think we covered a lot of ground. We really hope we can see you in person at EarthX sometime soon. Trammel, uh, we hope that you continue putting on that show. In the meantime, it'll have to be virtual. Thank you very much. Look forward to seeing you all right. That's it for now. We'll be back with a fresh episode of Political Climate next week. In the meantime, I hope you'll check out our bonus episodes in a series we called Ditched. That's all about fossil fuel divestment and green finance. You'll find all of those shows on the Political Climate feed, which is available wherever you get podcasts. We plan to do more Ditched episodes in the coming weeks, so watch out for that. For now, I'm Julia Piper, signing off. <laughs>